In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, summer, we hardly knew thee. It is the uh, end of summer. What do you call it? The end of summer, the start of a new semester, or maybe the beginning of the program year. Whatever August brings, whatever August brings, it usually means that we are knuckling down. Past couple of days, my kids have been frantically completing their summer work which I told them in May to do, mind you. But I would admit that it's been pretty hectic in the rector's office the last few days as well, because it's time to strap in and get busy, time to do a job. Here's a question. What happens when that becomes our lens, not just to see the way that we approach the new semester or our job, or all the things on our to-do list, but that is the way that we approach God. The church in the West, I think, has largely done that. Because in America, we swim in waters of performanceism, achievement, accomplishment. And so that becomes our default for approaching everything, from our jobs to God. And so through that lens, what matters to God is what we do for God, either through our own personal holiness, how often we go to Mass, or we pray the daily office, or we open our Bibles, how uh, loving we are, how, how much we forgive, how kind we are, or what matters to God is how hard we work for a more just society, how well we treat the poor, how we treat the immigrants, the refugees. How we stand up against gun violence. In the chapter of uh, Seculosity, called The Seculosity of Jesus Land, our friend Dave Zoll takes on, or he at least addresses both branches of the church the kind of conservative evangelical holiness branch, and then the more um, progressive sort of uh, mainline and social transformation wing. So I've put you on w different wings. This is the evangelical wing. This is the, I'm kidding. But there are two wings in the church. And Zal says this. He says, in its emphasis on personal transformation, American evangelicalism seems more American than evangelical. What matters more than what God has done for you is what you can and need to do for God. And church in this vein very much functions as a schoolhouse for saints. Its principal purpose being to produce holiness and even happiness in the lives of its members. But, alas, the flaw in the heart does not vary along political lines, which means that if social transformation forms the heart of the preaching you either give or receive, the resentment is a foregone conclusion, just as it is when personal sanctification makes for the primary message. Instead of loving your neighbor, you start to hate her for not showing compassion or not showing enough compassion. You hate yourself, too. Well, the past few Sundays, Father Travis has been walking us through uh, some passages from the minor prophets. Remember, the minor prophets are not 
the JV team. They're not the B-side of a really good record. They're minor just means that they're shorter. There are 12 of them. They're all shorter than the major prophets in the Old Testament. So he's been walking us through these passages. And this morning, chapter 11 of Hosea. Hosea is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, chapter 11 is a letter not just to Israel, but to anyone who is ramping up to knuckle down to take August by storm. It's a letter written to us, and it has just three words. The first word, first word is I. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So the opening line of the letter tells us something about the I, about the person writing the letter. It's about God. What it tells us is that God favors Israel the way that a father favors a son, favors a child. Now, most of us have an imperfect understanding of father love because we had imperfect fathers. I am an imperfect father. My children, I make fun of them in my sermons. They will have a bad understanding of fatherly love. But, ideally, a father, or a mother, for that, for, my, for that matter, a parent should love a child unconditionally, not because they do or achieve anything that is worthy of our love and acceptance. And that's why I'm so grateful that we baptize infants in the Episcopal Church. Infants cannot achieve and when we baptize them, it is a sign. It says something. It's a sign that God's love goes first. God always goes first to love creatures who have not loved him in return. The I that called Abraham, that led Israel out of Egypt, and calls you and me. God always leads with love. He steps out first to take hold of us before we can take hold of him. That is the first word of the letter, the I. So I want to jump the second letter, uh, word, and take the third word, second. If you weren't confused ori originally, now you are. So the third word is you. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they've refused to return to me. My people are bent on turning away from me. So the first line tells us something about the I. The, set, the, the third line of, or word of the letter tells us something about ourselves. And it's this reference to Egypt and Assyria. Egypt and Assyria. If you read Hosea, these, these two nations are all over this, this book of prophecy. Um, way back in chapter 7, is when they first, I think when they first come up, and Chapter 7 says that Ephraim or, or Israel is, they're the same thing. Ephraim just stands in for Israel. It says, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. Flitting back and forth between Egypt and Assyria. What are these words? Why, are they, why these two nations? I think it's because these are Israel's obsessions. Israel's obsessions. Think about Egypt. Egypt is, it's the, like the proverbial land where the grass is always greener. It's fed by the Nile. They have plenty of food. Every time Israel gets in 
trouble with food, they flee down to Israel, to, to Egypt. It's the place where all of your needs are met. It's lush, it's green. The hungry always are fed, the thirsty always have water. And then Assyria is the ultimate empire. It's power. It is military power and security in the face of fear. And Israel flits like a bird between Egypt and Assyria, loving, leaving God to run after one or the other of these desires just like we do. Our hearts yearn at once for wealth and comfort and prosperity and affluence. And then the very next minute, we become afraid and run to something for our security, some foreign god. That is the you in the letter, a you that flits between foreign gods. So we have the I, the first letter, uh, the first word. We have the you, the third word. You can guess the middle word. The middle word is love. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Israel ran after strange gods. They gave in to their fear, but they cannot stiff-arm God's love. God cannot quit them. He can't make his people like Adma and Zeboim. You know what those are? Nobody remembers those. Those are two cities of the plain that God destroyed alongside of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody knows Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody knows Adma and Zeboim. He says, I can't make you like those. I can't forget you. He recoils at this and promises never to leave us or forsake us, no matter that we always seem to be forsaking and leaving God. That's it. That's the story of Hosea 11. It's the story of the entire Bible. It's a letter with three words, I love you, period, full stop. But one last point. Sometimes, sometimes a letter can change a life. Sometimes a letter can change a life. In October 1860, uh, uh, an 11-year-old girl from New York wrote down these words on a piece of paper and put them in the post. She wrote, Dear Sir, my father has just come home from the fair and brought home your picture. I am a little girl, only 11 years old, but want you should be President of the United States very much. So I hope you won't think me very bold to write to such a great as a man as you are. I have got four brothers, and part of them will vote for you anyway. And if you will let your whiskers grow, I will try and get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better, for your face is so thin. All the ladies like whiskers. Tell that to my wife in the winter. All the ladies like whiskers. And they would tease their husbands to vote for you if I was a man. I would vote. And if I was a man, I would vote for you too. Remember, this is before women suffered. Uh, but I will try and get everyone to vote for you that I can. Signed, Grace Bedell, Chautauqua County, New York. And soon after, Abraham Lincoln grew a beard. And you know the rest. Now maybe 
Grace's letter changed a life. I don't know. But I can tell you this from my own personal experience. What I believe and what I know is that a love letter from Grace himself, written in words carved on a cross, changes a life. God's overpowering, persuasive, irresistible love softens and transforms the hearts of rebels like us. God has written a letter, and you've got mail. Consider that an invitation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.